Hello and welcome to the Home Assistant Podcast. My name's Phil. Joining me as usual, I've got Rohan. And today we're joined by Alistair. How's it going? Hey guys, uh, really well. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, whereabouts are you joining us from? I am in a, in a village just south of York, so north side of England. Nice. GMT, nice. right in the middle time zone between you two. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah. Always love going back to the UK. All right, as usual, this episode of the Home Assistant Podcast is sponsored by Home Assistant Cloud by Nabucasa. Easily access your local Home Assistant instance remotely for a small monthly fee that supports the Home Assistant and the ESP Home project. Configuration is done via the user interface, so no fiddling with router settings, SSL certificates, or any YAML. All right, uh, Alistair, let's maybe give yourself a little bit of an intro. So you're right on GMT, right in smack bang between us. What's led you to Home Assistant? How did you get here today? Uh, so as a kid, I mean, we started right from the beginning. I always just took everything apart, bikes, whatever, had to understand how they worked. Um, probably yep. this resonates with quite a few people who are into home automation. And then these things called computers came along. And although you took them apart, you didn't really understand how they worked. So um, I ended up doing you know, a degree in computing, learned how they are, career in IT. Yes. Um, and throughout all of that, to be honest, you know, you do everything in IT and you sort of press buttons on a browser or whatever, and something else happens in software. And I didn't really sort of, I was always fascinated by sort of the switch from software to hardware. You press a button and something in hardware happens, but it, it was never really attainable and never really in the kind of work that I did. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, the whole thing really started with the Raspberry Pi when that came out. I was fascinated with it as a, you know, really small, low power device that you could turn on and just leave in the house running 24 by 7 um and that was the first entry point into it i mean i bought the pie didn't really have anything to do with it probably like most people um and then i started the whole thing started with music for me really so i had um i started buying the hi-fi berry boards i don't know if you're familiar with them but they're little hi-fi boards piggyback onto the raspberry pi so and you can buy them in all different forms. So some of them have built-in amps. Some of them have like 3.5mm yeah. jacks into it. And I also then, but it, it was in the backdrop of, we were at the point of, do we buy Sonos or not? That was probably the, you know, and so I, I costed up Sonos and gone, wow, that's a lot of money. Um, yeah, I was going to say, don't do that. Just, yeah. Just, yeah, just buy Sonos. You don't do the costing. You just buy one Sonos uh, yeah. and then you let that be the gateway, right? <laughs> so, so I did the costing. I went, wow, that's a lot of money uh, and decided... Yeah. Uh, you know, said to my wife, there must be a better way of doing this and talk to some colleagues and got pushed onto yeah. it. It was, it was an interesting one, the LMS project, so the Logitech Media Server. Now, I know mm, yeah. you've done many sort of, you know, failures of the cloud and what have you, and it was a great example of a commercial company who decided to, you know, sort of deprecate a product. And at the same yeah. time, they open sourced the software. So squeeze light on our ring. So you could basically mm-hmm. install the software. And it was in the days where you'd, you'd rip your whole sort of CD library onto flag put it on the thing so you kind of had a server and then you had these um clients these little squeeze lights and i had like you know we've all got like sound bars in the house i had a stereo in there so basically started just dropping pies left right and center around the house um with the central server one running which kind of became keys home assistant and i could play music you know and it was just it's mind blowing you know i had done it for essentially what was you know a few pounds you know considering what the Sonos would have cost, 
I was so, so pleased with it. And then there was this kind of environment around people had done the add-ons to it. So you could do radio add-ons. So suddenly I could just stream, you know, zone right. streaming of radios and, mm. and everything. And and that part, I was just totally hooked. Um, so things moved on then. Um, so I've got a computer on 24 by 7 and I'm starting to, I, I went and bought a load of Toya smart plugs at the time. There were Toya, just basically 39, yeah. you know, as, as we know today. And then there was, you know, they were cloud connected and I put them on and we had a few lights and we're thinking, oh, this is, this is okay. But at the same time, I was just, yeah, browsing on the web as we all do. And I found this thing called Home Assistant. I think I was doing like searches for integration with Toya or, and, and that yeah. was it. I was in pretty much the early days. Um, but I got it up and running in, in a, you know, an hour or so started connecting up these plugs. And from there, you know, I was fully in the rabbit hole and, you know, we should sort of, I said this to anybody who I sort of start talking about Home Assistant for, you know, there should be a health warning on this. Yeah, really <laughs> should, you know. uh, if you are of a certain nature or personality, you know, and, and you get into yeah. this, it's just, it takes over everything. Like the hours I have spent, and I've loved every single minute of it, but I think, yeah. you know, people should just be aware, you know, if, if you're of that kind of disposition and you, you kind of enter this stuff, this is the biggest rabbit hole you'll ever go into in sort of IT. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, it's, it's expensive and it's addictive. Yeah. Well, it's yes. interesting. On the expensive side, I if, if you look at, like, by not buying Sonos, and I know when I'm kind of into the world of, I saved everything that I've ever spent on Home Assistant. And I, I'd actually say I've not spent a fortune on it. I'm really, really pleased with what I've spent. The smart plugs and everything, I'd say, have managed to pay for themselves without a doubt in terms of what they save so you know you can do it on a budget but the also sort of the word of warning is like i i buy typically you know when you're browsing aliexpress i'm tended to buy the cheapest one because most of the time you're thinking yeah is this worth doing mm -hmm. is it going to work 100%. yeah and, and i buy the cheapest one and i got caught out once with a reed switch on a garage door and i just for the life of me it was like it wasn't working, saying the garage door was open when it was closed. And, and yeah. I'd go and put a, a multimeter on it, and it appeared to be working. And then, I'd, uh, and I, yeah, long story short, I changed it. I bought some slightly more expensive reed switches, and it worked perfectly. And it, I'd pulled all the wiring out, assumed I had a break in it. So you can, you know, when we were sort of at the one dollar, you know, one pound end of the small little bits you're buying, maybe. You want to buy a little bit better or something. Yeah. I've got caught out, <laughs> sure. but, but but it is always worth the time. You know, you don't really want to admit how much you spend on this stuff. So I've I've tried to always, especially when you're doing like, and... yeah, when you're ripping out wires, start all over again, and then yeah. you're like, oh, what's the point, right? Like, yeah. So on yeah. that, you said that you think you've saved more money than you've invested into Home Assistant. How do you think you've been able to achieve that? Uh, without a doubt, just from the energy management. So we'll come on to it. The okay. heating system I have, and that will go into that. That is just massive. But even though mm -hmm. I've, um, even small things like turning the tellies off, I've got one telly, an older one, it first and one behind it. That one is a really old LED, and it, even on standby, it's like 16, 17 watts on standby. And when you turn wow. it on, yeah. it, it's even more, you know, like compared, I've got a much bigger TV over there, and it uses yeah. probably a third than that, than that one. So just Turning on, you're just using smart switches and turning them off, or getting Home Assistant to turn them off, probably pays for those plugs as they are. Yep, easily. Yeah. So, and and we will get into the, the big savings later on, and and they are really really tangible to me. 
So, um, yeah, I guess, how did you, so what are you running Home Assistant on today? Like, did you, is it still the Raspberry so, Pi or have you had to upgrade? Because yeah, everyone sort of I, starts with the Raspberry Pi, right? Well, this is a burning contention for me because I, I did upgrade to a Raspberry Pi far 4 with an SSD when, when you could get older than yep. when they were cheap. And I would mm. say I've got a pretty extensive implementation. I got a lot of devices on there. It's doing a lot of things. And I've never, ever had a problem, never had a problem with, you know, latency of it yes. turning on lights or, or anything. Now, I realize I've got a distributed system, but we'll probably go into the architecture, but I have no intention to change it whatsoever. And I've got Frigate running on there now. You know, I've got four cameras wow. streaming and it's doing presence detection. So I often think, and I know I've heard on the podcast people, and, and particularly at the moment you see on the Facebook groups and everyone is going, oh, I'm upgrading to a NERC or I'm going, you know, because my home assistant is running slow on my Pi. And I'm like, sure. well, well, it must be masking something because mine's doing a lot and it's absolutely fine. <laughs> so, and, and, you, you get back into if you're not careful, you know, some of these things, you, I did a sort of back fag packet kind of calculation. I think my home assistant is about 20, 25 pounds a year to run. Um, now, wow, that's kind of dependent on your electricity tariff and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, if, if you, as soon as you start, you know, I know you plenty of guys running racks of servers in there. In their basements and what have you, and I think we are sort of losing the point of it here. One of the reasons I see home system is to, you know, it should save you money. Really, is a not it's be all and end all, but it's it's one of the byproducts that you hopefully gain from having a smart home. Yeah, no, that's fair. So I, mean, I know there's. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just I'll just finish on the the music thing because that was like, and then I, I moved on to as as we've all done, you know, no one rips CDs or whatever. And then the last bit yeah. in terms of like software that I used, I then found uh, well LibreSpot, but specifically Rust Spotify. I don't know if you've seen that on. So it's it's basically uh, a library to run that integrates with Spotify. And I've got some of those pies are in some pretty hostile environments because I've got one in the polytunnel, one out wherever and i've in i reckon eight to nine years i've never had a single failure of either the hi-fi bar uh, hi-fi berry boards so the audio boards or the raspberry pi so in terms of bits mm. of kit they're, they're fantastic you know absolutely fantastic so i would um That's awesome so i kind of was like early on the i know there's been the the kind of music theme to uh film mm. assistant but i i sort of started with that and i was years ago and and as you see later in terms of the setup i've got and what i've done with say um presence detection the fact that i had a raspberry pi in sort of all the living rooms defined the architecture and direction that i went with with home assistant just because i had a pie in there and i was going to use as much as i could at that so i think a lot of the discussions are well we'll discuss it in presence or whatever but a lot of the discussions and stuff mm. that you have mm. were defined for me early days just because i used the pies as a kind of music direction and so with this like music direction through the Raspberry Pi, you've essentially got whole house audio that you would get with a Sonos high-end system, but running through Raspberry Pi. So it's all synchronized. You can shoot music around to different rooms as required. Absolutely. So you basically use a combination. At the bottom end, there's a thing called Pulse Audio that you put, which which accepts mm -hmm. audio streams yeah. from many and just sort of accumulates them. And then I use a combination of Rust Spotify, Snapcast, or Snap Server, if you're familiar with that. Yep. So that does the multi-room yep. audio for Spotify. And then Rust Spotify itself is the mechanism to do it. And it is absolutely rock solid. And I, I know you've got kids, Phil, that are young. Like, when I got into this, my kids were teenagers. And, and you know, mm. if they went to their phone and hit play on Spotify and it didn't 
you know, kick off in three milliseconds, you know, the world would start, stop evolving. <laughs> it was a kind of a, and so uh, they were kind of at this, um, you know, they went to college where everything was high end stuff. The internet was like, you know, mega. So we've, I've sort of tried as best as I can to provide an environment. which was somewhere on a par with that. And at least with the sort of streaming music thing, you know, it was absolutely, and is absolutely rock solid. And I would say, you know, up there with Sonos in terms of, I would expect the, the, the kind of experience that you have, you just hit play and it every single time. So yeah, that's fantastic. I, I, I don't know why. I think I always expected like when you're running it off of a raspberry Pi to be not, not a lower quality, but I just, I just assumed it would suffer a little bit from like in terms of just performance, right. Or like, like even latency processing, those kind of things when you're, when you're punting music through there. But, uh, cause I, I have actually seen those, uh, the hi-fi berries uh that you use there right the on on the raspberry pi and i'd looked into that a while ago to be like oh can i make my own smart speakers kind of thing right and and that that that, that's what it always came down to i'm like i don't know like but uh it's actually good to hear that that's uh it's as performant as it is it is i I don't know how much the hi-fi berry boards sort of take any of the processing if any off i mean my We'll sort of get into, and I, I know, Phil, your aversion to Wi-Fi and everything is beyond. I'm on Wi-Fi. But before that, one of the things we did when we moved into the house was I, before we put some, uh, perhaps one of my ticks, uh, trip, uh, one of my tips is like we moved in and there was no wiring for anything. There was no Cat5 in anywhere, no alarm system right. in. So I right. ran cables all around the sort of at the ceiling level. And then that was before we put some coving in. So if, if you don't have coving and you don't have cat five, put all the cabling in before and then it all gets covered up. So one of my prerequisites for these is that all of the pies that stream music, particularly simultaneously, they're all on a wired network. So they're all on switched 100 meg, which I think is a nice. big part of. If people are experiencing problems, a lot of them are going to be networked, particularly when you're doing simultaneous streaming. Yeah, I think even with Sonos, um, if you, like Sonos runs its own separate Wi-Fi network to do all the uh, similarities, right? Um, And even then, like Sonos can struggle. And I can't remember if once you then plug one, so by default, it will use your Wi-Fi network um, because you, uh, that we could just have the speakers around separately but to get the best performance out of it and if you do find that your sonos system is you know getting a bit of out of sync you can actually plug one uh sonos speaker into an ethernet jack and then it will create its own wi-fi system around itself um so that you know you get better quality so it's certainly yeah wi-fi can be a performance hit for even just music streaming around the house definitely yeah yeah i i kind of come from the i mean i have tales of my whole view of wi-fi is a it's a lot more reliable and robust than you think we used to go we get flown off to these you know sort of uh sort of every year and you'd kind of learn all the new products or what have you and we'd be in some freezing cold air conditioned you know huge amphitheater there'd be like five thousand people and Mm -hmm. on would come you know the executive vp of something or other saying hey we've got the new version of beta whatever and you know simultaneously three thousand laptops would open up and you get that hue of three thousand laptops being opened up and yeah and everybody would start to download this thing of X gigabytes and it worked, you know. So to a certain degree, I as, as we move on, all of my devices, if they're not on wide network, they're on Wi-Fi. I've got nothing Z something or other. Uh, and, and it's a yeah. little bit of a, I stayed away from Z everything just because I didn't really understand it. And I fully understood Wi-Fi and 
you know, and that's that's been my, and I've gone around and sort of reutilized loads of the old, you know, you get the old routers that you get as you upgrade and suppliers and all of that. And so I was flashing those with OpenWRT and, and just using those as Wi-Fi <laughs> access points around the house. So I just went down the route of I will have rock solid Wi-Fi throughout the house and that will yeah. work. And, and to be honest, it has. And it's a technology I understood and had trust in. So it's it's worked really, really well for me. So I kind of moved on from that because we did the smart plugs. And then I then, it's, it's interesting because as I sort of reflected on coming on here, I thought, how do you sort of describe your journey? And a lot of the time, so I, I kind of got in my mind, you've got like pre-home assistant and post-home assistant. I, You've obviously, you know, when you move somewhere, and I should sort of start off and sort of say, I was really, really lucky in the fact that I moved here, I own the house, or, you know, we live and we own the house, we don't rent. And I knew kind of yeah. for, for a load of the things that we've got, we were going to live here for a long, long time. So I, I just, it was easy for me to invest in and get involved within the project because I knew I was never going to rip anything out, which meant I could dig up, you know, the driveway and put cables in if I needed to. It was, it was worthwhile yeah. doing. So, th- so that, right. but then you've got this sort of pre phase. I'm sure this must resonate with a whole lot of people where you've, you've got into home assistant and you suddenly, oh, I've got all these things I need to connect. So I went down the whole route of lights went in first, um, and, and and one thing I bought, so when I bought, when we moved in, I wired up a traditional alarm system, you know, so the infrared things in with a box on the wall, like sort of stuff. And at the same time, just around the same time, connected with a K. So I don't know if you've seen or heard of them. So they make specialized alarm panel boards that replace the existing mm-hmm. ones. Yeah. So I waited for the pro version to come out with a wired Ethernet connection. And I put that in. So, and that was really really important because i suddenly turned the alarm system from this binary really thick on off kind of device into a key device for me actually using home assistant i went plug mad and put everything in so i was lucky sort of from a pre home assistant most of the lights that we use in the house are plugged in so they're standing lamps we don't really use the the sort of the wall light switches there are a few we use but not many but that meant yeah I could obviously put smart plugs on those and control them through Home Assistant. And if I did it intelligently, we were there. And then I, I sort of at the same time, then I, I never really had heard of ESP devices, you know, 286s or 8266s or anything like that. So I, and, and this word Tasmota kept coming up. And, and that was the, you know, the light switch moment when you miss, ah, I've got this now. The Toya stuff was, was good. It worked across the cloud. There was a bit of latency. But then I sort of understood the whole, subsystem if you like of tasmota and then esp home wasn't really as big as tasmota at the time and that's the profiles the guy blackadder i i could i I owe him a beer you know because he had written the profile for the plugs that i had that actually also did energy monitoring which was really useful i tried to flash them with esp home and i was i was lost in a world of pain trying to edit some yaml files trying to work out how to get this plug to work and then you know, so I was kind of committed on the Taz motor side more by fate than anything. One's better than the other. And and do you, are you still on that train? Yeah, right? I'd say like so. I mean, I have. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything's Taz motor now. So every device I have is local. Um, yeah. And if it can be Beautiful. flashed, it has been flashed and it sits there and runs locally. And then I had a, our, our post box is sort of away from the house. So I even, you know, I, I, I sort of had a bolt thing and a little micro switch so when that came up i could actually tell when the 
the post box had been opened and, and then the gate bell as well so there's a you know on an intercom system and this is perhaps another tip i struggled for for years trying to weigh a, a reliable way to catch when the doorbell had been rung mm -hmm. and it was mostly because all intercom systems as far as i can make out are all sort of ac like mine's 24 volt ac which is kind of difficult to do anything with and in the end i was trying to like took the box apart and tried to sort of make up my own switch if you like mm -hmm. so that when the button was pressed it made a contact and there was all sorts of hot glue solutions and, and none of it really worked <laughs> yeah. until i got to um i found you can get these tiny little ac relay boards off mm -hmm. aliexpress again or whatever so of for course. anybody who's trying to integrate stuff on like intercom stuff so it's basically a, you plug in the sort of the AC contacts. So wherever the buzzer rings, if you like, those AC contacts go live. You put them into the relay one end and it flipped just a relay the other side. In So I suddenly now, and I've got, you know, I had an ESP device, so I've got GPIs. And so I can suddenly catch reliably the doorbell going. So there was another one. That was sort of my yeah. pre-home assistant phase. And I did the garage doors as well. Similarly, the same thing. I sort of ran wires, had an old Pi, used all the GPIOs, so they had sort of reed switches at the bottom to connect it, and essentially a board with with relays that were just mimicking the button pressing of, you know, if you actually open it. And that kind of had the advantage that, and it's pretty been one of my ethos, is that most stuff that you integrate, it works as it used to, as much as it works yes. as well with Home Assistant, so that kind of gets you out of problems when things fail if you like absolutely yeah, the, the reliability factor i think there is huge right so because mm. i have it just i automated my garage tool not too long ago and same thing i got a garage door opener off uh, amazon which integrates with HomeKit, but it just it's just two wires right it flicks a relay so that means all the fobs all the remotes in the house still work right um so there's no it's home assistant it's just an add-on doesn't interfere with anything else and i think that's a bonus yeah it's exactly my ethos across all of this because you know we we have failures whether we like to admit them or not within our own yep. sort of smart homes and, and the failures can be really really painful unless you've got you know the actual sort of original backup 100%. for it as well the last thing you want is so, home assistant to be a single point of failure in your home yeah um like if home assistant's offline nothing works right that's the worst case scenario yeah so out of out of everything you've talked about, I mean everything you've talked about and everything you haven't yet, um, how local versus cloud dependent are you? Do you would you say? Oh, I'm pretty. I, I'm okay in that. So we'll move on. I I have a power wall, which we'll talk about in a bit. So I have a Tesla power wall. So I am. If the power drops here, everything stays up pretty much. Um, so all the lights work, all the switches work, everything's Tasmota locally, the heating system and everything. So right. I have really, I mean, it's quite interesting because like the power wall itself has a local API, but if you use the app on the phone, it's going to the Tesla cloud and whatever, and then coming back down. But right, right, as far right. as I'm concerned here, if, if you were to knock the Wi-Fi off now or, or rather my broadband in terms of the house, everything would continue to work. Now I've kind of, some of that's by luck, some of that's by design, if you like. And if I was sort of moving forward, I would make sure by design everything is. So kind of anything yeah. that had a cloud element to it, I sort of have stayed away from it. And as this makes an interesting story, like in this pre and post home assistant. So we did the kitchen up and then we had a, we had a big window and we sort of waited a little while. And thought, oh, we actually need a blind for the window. It's a big window. Um, we weren't sure whether we wanted to. 
and and you kind of go in this pre-world you just you just hook up what you've got and you work around the problems that you've got the money is invested you just got to get it worked. and then you go to the we've got to buy a blind and you're there you know with your with your better half and they're kind of going through and go oh i quite like this one and i'm sure we've all done it where you're there typing away like furiously doing google searches going does this integrate with my system <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're going, 100%. oh, I quite like that one, but this one might be good, you know. And, and apparently, for some bizarre reason, the choice of the blind was going to be based on the aesthetics of the blind rather than its ability to hook into home system. So yeah. I just find it it amuses me exceedingly now when we're sort of in the, the post-home system world and your choice of, of doing things is based a lot on whether it actually works with it or either the degree of difficulty or the expense of getting this thing integrated into it. For, for me, I actually find that a little bit um, good in the fact that it, it actually reduces the field of options. Like if I'm looking for a yeah. light switch or something, right? Like if it doesn't interact with Home Assistant, then I don't care about it. Or if I see something on AliExpress and I go, oh, that looks cool. Uh, actually, does it work with Home Assistant? Then no, I'm not interested. Because um, otherwise, yeah. I just end up in a situation where I want to integrate something and it doesn't integrate, and I'd be frustrated. So the, the the problem with that is, and I, I agree with that ethos, but the problem is when you're buying some things that you're, are being chosen for the aesthetics in the room as opposed to you know any other. And at that point, then true, I don't you know. Funny enough, I I don't have an overall say on what gets bought. Like, yeah, well, I think I think the other thing is too, depending on what it is you're buying too. There's sometimes your choices are cloud or cloud, right? Uh, if you want mm. somewhat good. Otherwise, it's just it's just going to be um, it's going to be you know you're stuck with something that you don't really necessarily want, right? Uh, yeah, an interesting story. That in the end, we ended up with a Somfy blind, the Somfy motor. Yes, yep. yep. And whilst we were going through this process of choosing the blind, you know, I'd sort of managed to see, yeah, you could buy a bridge, uh, but the bridge was two hundred pounds. I'm like, okay, you know, I'll just swallow that. Yeah. I've got no choice. We're having this blind, and um. In the background then, after the blind was chosen, it was odd and what have you. I, I've just been ages thinking there must be a better way to do this. And I came across Pi Somfy, which was just another, I owe that guy a beer as well. You know, he'd actually, <laughs> so you order off AliExpress, the little 433 megahertz sender. Yeah. And he'd even then, now Somfy for their infinite wisdom, rather than using 433.86 or whatever, they use 433.26 or whatever it is. But for the right. cost of about four pounds, you know, four dollars or whatever, I got three of those sent over with the correct crystals, desoldered the crystals, put on the new crystals, and he's got like this, you know, a bunch of software that runs on the Pi that integrates with, you know, um, MQTT, and, and and I had the whole thing up and running for five pounds against an existing Pi, and I was just like, this is amazing. You, know, you just couldn't do this anywhere yeah. else. I was. I was down for buying a separate bridge for 200 pounds, which probably used another load of, you know, probably two or three watts again. So I was trying to get away from that world. And it works perfectly. The blind still works on the remote if you want to override it. And then Home System just does its thing based on time of day, light, et cetera, et cetera, what it does. So it's, a, it's just, um, it, it just makes me smile on this whole pre and post. You know, your your mm. decision-making criteria just changes radically when, when you've got to sort of see whether this is going to fit, whether it's the right color and what have Trying to steer things. It's trying to steer the conversation. I, I like this one. This is good. 
Just on the the remotes there, being 433 megahertz, do you know, does Home Assistant have like a live status update of what position the blinds are in? Like does it know the blinds are open, blinds are closed? Can it tell that state or it just sends it open? No, it's like halfway. Well, the, well, the RTS, so it's a, it's a Sunfi RTS blind. So I don't think it does in that the the remote doesn't either. You kind of, so the, mm. the way the blind works is you set the, the top boundary, the bottom boundary, and then you have this thing called the Sumfi place, which is like a fixed point somewhere wherever you determine. So you program yep. that all in the remote. So typically what you'll do, you know, when the sun's at a certain level, it, it will just, you either press the, on the remote, you'd press the Sumfi home button or whatever it is, which brings it down to that predetermined state. And then you can go up or down. And to be honest, that's, if I look at home assistant, it knows it's pressed the Sumfi button. So it puts the blind in its position of half midpoint or whatever. But if I actually were to manually override it, I don't believe it would know that so home assistant wouldn't know if you like i've dropped or risen the blind but to be honest we just leave it we've got the rules set up and i you know we hardly ever ever use the remote just because it does everything so it's worked why would you need to yeah the only only reason you would need to touch it is if you need to change the blind outside of your automations which would be rare yes exactly yeah or or i was going to say if the power goes out at some point right and then it it resets its state, which nowadays isn't a problem anymore. Yeah, except it's using MQTT for mine, so it's retaining state. So in theory, Perfect. in a power cut, everything should remain as is. I know it's in theory, and pretty much it does, if I'm... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we then moved on to presence, and I'll sort of... Yeah, I'm kind of like, I have presence nailed now. I know it's the biggest headache for everybody. I've spent countless, countless hours and what have you into doing that. So... Remember, I had a pie in every room, um, pretty much all the living rooms or all the stuff that you really care about. And I had the connected alarm system. So I trigger uh, lights based on movement from the infrared sensors to the alarm. So as you walk around the house, lights just come on as you go in. And and you realize that those infrared sensors are absolutely rock solid. If you cross the beams, they work every single time. So I'm really pleased with that. The problem then is, of course, you've walked into a room, let's say we leave the lights on for five minutes. You've really got to move quite a bit then to re-trigger that infrared beam. And so we move into the real headache. And when I set this up, this was years before microwave sensors and and all those things that we've got now. Um, So I started to use Room Assistant first. So if you've seen that one. So, and that's based on, yep. And I spent a lot of time nailing down room assistant to be reliable um, in terms of checking when the cluster state is and resetting it automatically. So if if you get into room assistant, go into MQTT Explorer and check the cluster state so that you'll often find if you've got quite a few nodes, they split themselves off into different clusters and then, you know, your state just goes all over the place. Um, But, and, and I ended up, I don't know about you, Phil, but I ended up using Bluetooth Classic and it drives me nuts because you know, BLE is so much better for presence, mm. but I could not get any device to regularly keep BLE going. Because, like, if you do the iPhone thing, it just turns off in the end. Android did it as well. And so Bluetooth Classic works, um, and it works 90-odd percent of the time, I would say, in terms of you have to really fiddle with the RSSI values to make sure it knows it's getting a signal from the right room. And I, I was pretty much there, but I still... Sort of, I, I had the use case of you know sometimes my wife would decide to go into say that you know into the dining room to read a book without a phone. And I don't know yeah. who would do that kind of thing, but 
she went and did it and of course she's static in the room with no phone and the lights go out after five minutes or whatever and a, and a, and a smart home starts to look like a really really dumb home uh, and i <laughs> yeah. finally fixed that one so there's another project i found um which which essentially i bought the four pound raspberry pi cameras so i stuck them onto the machines that were already there doing the music so they were already mm. on and in and it's basically a um it's in my case is a docker container that you sort of run which has got open cv in so and, and you tailor it it's not doing any recording or anything and if you look at the resolution of the camera you can't really see any faces but oh, all it's doing is just detecting camera, yeah. yeah it's detecting motion and it's really good at detecting motion just tiny sort of movements of head or anything and so that's been in combination with the room assistant i'd say i finally nailed presence but i haven't included one other part of that which sort of moves on to the network is the presence so that's like room presence keep the lights mm. on presence in terms of in home or not home i've ended up using phones because we all carry our phones around but i use um so the way i've done it is the phones have fixed IP addresses. So like when you connect to your Wi-Fi, you do the edit, you give it a fixed IP address. So it always jumps onto the network, always on the same IP address. And then essentially I use the ping connector in Home Assistant to actually hit pings. Yep. But the problem with, with iPhones in particular is they go to sleep. And I found another sensor. It was, I think it was on hacks. Uh, I ought to really do it. It was, it was uh, art plus ping. And iPhones respond to ARP um, Keeper Lights, I think, uh, essentially all the time. And again, that is absolutely rock solid. So for the for my wife and the two kids, I can guarantee to know whether they are in the house or not. 24 by 7, rock solid. So we kind of, you've got a set of automations based on room presence and a set of automations based on whether somebody's in the house. But I would recommend people looking as a mechanism of doing it Fixed IPs for the phone, so you always have to, you know, create a, a lease space in your uh, DHCP setup. Fix the phone so that when they jump on that, they they have the same IP address, and it also solves random MAC address problems. So it just works, mm. and it's absolutely brilliant. So I would recommend that. How have you found in terms of other people in the house having cameras, you know, like being used for the room presence? I know in my family, it's sort of we don't want cameras looking at us you know, in the home. Did you ever have, did you have any pushback? What about, you know, other people like guests coming into the home? Have you had any pushback against that? I haven't, but I'm not even sure they've even noticed them. The Raspberry Pi cameras in there, they're tiny. Um, so no, my kids just roll their eyes all the time, just go, oh, dad, the Chinese are looking at us, you know, what are you doing kind of thing. <laughs> so I, I kind of get yeah. the derision on one half and from guests and that, no. I've never had any pushback, but it's, it's not a kind of in-your-face thing and and if it was i'd happily show them this thing isn't recording it's just detecting motion yeah, so yeah i i'm sort of pretty relaxed about that and just as long as you yourself know what you're doing you know you're kind of fine with it in the end i'm sure there are yeah. worse things happening out as soon as you go sort of out into public with what's happening with all the cameras. yeah exactly so moving on from that i i then did the so, so i had but you know in a night of rage i ripped you know everything went static i well Pseudo static IP addresses, and then I bit the bullet as well. Like I really can't remember what kind of phase it was or what time it was, but I moved the whole thing across to YAML. So my everything automations and uh, all of the UI as well, it's all YAML. And I think this was um, it, it's sort of interesting. I, I went to this because I was looking for at the time at work, 
we were sort of we had to learn DevOps, you know, because it was all the thing, all the rage. Everybody was talking about it. And I was thinking, what can I do here? And I suddenly realized I, I can flip the whole thing on, and then I can do DevOps on it. So all of my configuration is in a repository. It's actually on an, an Azure private repo because at the time GitHub didn't have private repos, and there was no way I was putting my repo <laughs> in public because it's awful. <laughs> it's probably full of keys and all sorts. Um, yeah. But you could have a private repo there. So my development switch then, I use Visual Studio Code, um, and it then, so I develop locally if you like, and then I commit, and I've got a DevOps agent. So you can have these uh, agents. So there's an agent on the Pi that's running Home Assistant, and it basically then, it sees the commit and then copies it and then does a check. So the equivalent of when you're going to, you know, check the validity of the YAML that you've done, it does one of those, assuming it passes, it then does a HA restart and restarts the home assistant. So I've got kind of about, I'm, I think I've about 3,000 commits, something like that on my home assistant development tree, if you like. Um, but it's, it was a good, it was a really good way of actually learning sort of DevOps because it was, mm-hmm. you, you learn by the mistakes, yeah. you kind of have, you make mistakes and then you have to learn how to unpick mistakes and yada, yada, yada. And now I wouldn't be without it because you just make mistakes when you're doing stuff and I, can sort of roll them back not that i ever do i just go and fix them but i have this history now of my sort of development of my own home system and it's backed up so does that mean every my, commit you do is like rebooting your home assistant to like reload automations yeah or reload the I, YAML? I, I knew you were going to pick this up so so yes is the answer and I yeah. know in, in the end, so I do a commit, okay, and it and it does a whole Home Assistant reboot, and and that gives me the time for me to reflect on the wisdom of my commit, really, or the lack of wisdom. Commit. <laughs> so, um, and and it, it can be a bit painful times because I've probably made a typo. You'll you'll see quite a few if you look at my commit history. There's there's quite mm, a few typos, yeah. typos. That's where I've just done something stupid, and that's cost me a few minutes in terms of the process of doing the whole reboot. And I know you could do it quicker, particularly when you're doing the UI development in Lovelace, but my Lovelace is pretty static now. I don't do much to it because I try to make Home Assistant something that you don't use the UI for, if you like. So mostly yep. I hope stuff just that happens sense, without actually yeah. So it, you know, for me personally, it works really, really well. Um, and I'm sort of comfortable with it. And I learned some you know, useful skills, if you like, from my career at the time and, you know, if anybody else needs to get into DevOps and into home assistance, it's a really good way of learning it. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about taking it to the level where you can detect, okay, in this commit, I only updated an automation. So instead of restarting home assistant, I'll just reload automations in home assistant to save the reboot oh, I thought time. about that, Phil. Yeah, I, I was waiting for you to write that bit and post it up so I can copy <laughs> it. <laughs> Well, in, in all honesty, depending on what you're doing, if you're just triggering webhooks, right? Just uh, say instead of running the restart, run the automation restart rather than hundred percent. That means even a bit when you look at my tree. So everything's in directories. So I've got all the automation scripts, Lovelace. So it would be pretty easy to actually work out whether I've made, say, a Lovelace only uh, mm. change and then just fire. I don't know. I can't remember. So. Basically, the DevOps agent gets access to, if you like, the HA core um, uh, shell terminal. 
So I don't know if you can, from the command line in HA Core, if you like, just do the sort of whatever the reload Lovelace thing is. Yeah. I don't know whether I've got access to that. I think you, can, you might be able to even just do it. I don't know how you have your config set up, but you might be able to do it based on file modified, right? Like, so again, if, for yeah, no, example, catch, if all of your automations I, are in automation.yaml, then... I, I can catch that bit for sure. I just don't know whether I've got access to only load, only re reload, you know, the automations or... Lovelace or whatever. Well, the Visual Studio Code uh, add-on for Home Assistant, I'm sorry, we're paying a little bit of uh, attention here, but the Visual Studio Code uh, add-on for Home Assistant allows you to reload those certain bits through the UI itself. So that must be accessing the Home Assistant API. So if you could get a long-lived access token into your DevOps engine, you could probably just fire off a curl request to Home Assistant to say, okay, only automation was changed here. Now fire off this to the API to reload just automations. That would probably be the best way around it. Okay, I, I'll put it on my list of things to do. And that's what I, I thought, but it, it had, but I <laughs> never actually made the list. Yeah, yeah. How, how big is that list, just out of curiosity? It's, uh, has, does it get shorter or does it always way. get longer? Well, it never ends. Let's put it that way. Never ends, it goes yeah. through phases um, of being short and long. And But but to be fair, in, in, you know, I've been at this years now and I am getting to the end of at least I'm getting to the end of, I need to run a bit of hardware here to do something, or I need to run a cable. I would say I am at the end, or, or near, I'm yeah. nearly at the end. Um, yeah, and I've yeah. even, that's when you sort of get on to the, this is a stretch goal kind of thing, can I do? We'll sort of move on to that as any sort of yeah, stuff. But I did the YAML, the DevOps stuff, as you discussed, and then I moved into the the what do we, what do we call it, the media remote phase. So mm. I suddenly... Ended up so we've all got fire sticks, whatever. We you know you got Roku TVs, soundbars, blah 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 blah, everything, whatever it is. Everything. And I decided at that point that I wanted everything to work within Home Assistant. So I embarked on this project of integrating everything. I bought some Broadlink IR devices. So anything that needs infrared, I can copy it and control it. And so essentially, if you sort of go into the room, so in, in my Lovelace, you go into the TV room or to the lounge or whatever, the first thing you see is is basically a large remote, which is, you know, with all the buttons. So I can control, Home Assistant can control everything. It can play Netflix. It can, it can do anything that the TV can do or you can do with all of those remotes together and play the volume which then opens the door then for all the automations of, you know, which everybody does, you know, watching a movie, whatever it happens to be. So it was, it was, um, it was difficult to do just because of the sheer size complexity and catching IR signals and all of that. And, and it was even more nuanced later on, you know, when you get into the, like the sound bar, you have to try and track how many times you need to press it to move the source to, to whatever. Yeah. And when you, you get in, yeah. so we had, that took quite a long time to bed down. And if I'm really honest, do we use it all? We use it for certain automations, for sure. But do we really use it for queuing up TV? No, the remotes are usually about. And it gets used when we can't find the remote. <laughs> it's how it works. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, there are tons of other automations. Like a, one, a, another one we got was the, um, I had the problem, and this, this is... Tasmos was fantastic in this one of catching, uh, you know, you, you turn the telly. So by default, the soundbar is configured to the pie. So by default, we're listening to music. So if there's music on, you walk into the room, turn the telly on, you need the soundbar to trigger to change source, which is a classic use case. How do you catch yeah. the use case of that? And I went through all sorts of 
I started pinging the telly to recognize the telly had w- woken up, but yep. that was too slow. Then the telly had some service. I can't even remember. It was some app on the telly, and uh, it just never worked. It never worked in a, in a way. And because I had uh, plugs that monitor power, within Tasmota, you can set a rule. So like by default, I knew when we were listening to music, the power was, say, 20 watts or whatever. But as soon as the telly fired up, it was, you know, above 75 watts. And at that point then, Tasmota just sends an MQTT signal. And I was there. And it was like a, there was this real light bulb moment of it works. It works 100% of the time. It never, ever fails. And so as soon as I turned the telly off, it then flipped, you know, the soundbar back to listening to the Pi. So, you know, for anybody who uses Tasmota and is, has got a power monitoring device, if you just sit and watch them, you can actually detect many, many different states and you can get Tasmota. I forget what Tasmota is. Is it rules in Tasmota? Yeah, rules in Tasmota. And it was a real, you know, if we're all looking for making these things like smart, but really, really reliable. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was one for me. You know, I had spent months and you'd all sit down and, you know, and then the kids would all roll their eyes as the telly, you know, as the sounds go into the wrong device or whatever. And I'm going, hang on, hang on, I can sort yeah. this, you know. So it, it was just one, you're searching for those sort of, you know, this one really, really works and that one worked. You mentioned that you got the Broadlink um, devices. Did you get the Broadlink Pro that also does the RF frequency? No, I went for the Mini 3s. Yep, I was going to get, my think... question was, could the RF, could you do the Soma blinds with the Broadlink if you had, if you needed to? I could have done, I think, but I just thought I didn't. Um, and I was, I had looked at them and then, because I was thinking, oh, do I need that to f- to control the uh, fire sticks? And I'd, I never actually got mm. to the bottom of whether I did need them and whether they could just because i realized i could control the fire sticks through the uh, you know the android android debugger thing oh, which best way to do it worked fine yeah yeah so i had a look and i kind of discounted it and i i bought the broad links before we got the blind car thing so yeah yeah that makes sense yeah fair you're then um fiddling around so i i also have and we haven't described but i have a polytunnel with irrigation systems in and that was i, I that was originally before we'd started doing Home Assistant, one of my other projects was that I'd got the pies and I, I have solar panels. So what I was trying to do was years go by, I was um, counting LED blinks. Yep. So, you know, when you've got and I could work out then roughly when I had an excess of electricity and then I could use the borehole to turn on the borehole to do the irrigation. And it was in, it hit back in the day um, that was again, that was the pies allowed me to do that. But that was based on. I don't know if anybody remembers, but there was actually a Windows 10 for for ARM, the development stuff. Yeah. So I could actually write this stuff in C Sharp. I could actually, um, more importantly, I only went down this route because I had to be able to put breakpoints in the code and see it. And you're in this weird world of trying to get the code to work. But then like, I'd go, I'd, I'd be in the polytunnel and then like, whatever time it was or whatever schedule, and I'd go, oh, that, that, that thing should be on now and it wouldn't go on or more. You'd walk in and everything should be off and there's water pouring out of something. Mm. So you're in this sort of double world of really creaky software. And as soon as you transition from the software to the hardware, well, valves stick on, valves don't turn off. So you've got this, you're convinced, you know, your software's rubbish and then it's just the valves got stuck. (laughs) Yeah. But I had all of that and I then 
decided and it was it was actually home assistant sort of was responsible then for a switch to ios so we've all got iphones now in the family whereas i couldn't do before because i'd written the code and the app that i'd done was written in uh xamarin mm. which was and i wasn't going to pay a hundred dollars to to apple if you like to be able to just put the software on my phone just like it's just not worth it and i i had another light bulb moment here when you think oh, I can actually put all of this into Home Assistant and I can use the Home Assistant app to actually control it. So so that was another huge um, project, if you like. So I switched everything, all the code. So I still left the code that was controlling the devices on the borehole and the polytunnel and the relays was, was custom C-sharp code. But I then just switched it to MQTT so Home Assistant could just control it. So... Home Assistant now controls all the schedules for the polytunnel irrigation. So we, we grow a lot in the polytunnel and Home Assistant does that. And I sort of, we sort of might as well move on to the energy side of it. The other thing I have, and I'm sure this is probably country specific. So we upgraded to have some more solar panels on. And because of that, we have this stupid, bizarre rule in this country where you have a, you're allowed to export four kilowatts out back onto the grid without any paperwork. Mm-hmm. As soon as you go above four kilowatts, you then have to get a DNO, which is this certificate, which takes 45 working days, working days to get after you filled in 28 pages of, I don't know what. Um, and I got, I got a certificate back, which means I can export back 7.2, I think it was, which I was really disappointed with because it's kind of rubbish. Mm. And yet, so to put that in context, the house has a hundred amp sort of um, fuse on it coming in off the grid. So even if you take like two kettles, you know, you boil this six kilowatts, isn't it? I can effectively only just put a bit more than two kettles back, but I can consume a hundred amps off the grid. And no one will tell me why. You know, I would much rather push way more. I've got capacity now for more solar, but I can't put it in. But the the problem with that is I now have a bigger capacity of solar than i do 7.2 to push back on a really really on the on the, the sort of the best summer days so what happens is that the the guys who install it have to basically install um a sink so as soon as i get to 7.2 if the house isn't drawing you know that it basically sinks it it just gets rid of it which is madness yeah, so at that waste. point now home assistant can monitor when i'm getting close to seven point it turns everything on because I'm going to lose it anyway, which right. luckily I've got, uh, you know, the borehole pump is two kilowatts. So I can, if I put the borehole pump on, that actually pulls me below the sort of, but, but Home Assistant is constantly monitoring this and keeping the pond tucked up. Or if I'm in excess, it might as well do the polytunnel irrigation now because I'm going to lose that energy anyway, which is, it's like really, really cool. You know, this thing's monitoring what's happening on some solar panels you know, what's going out onto the grid and just turns on, you know, a bunch of valves so that everything gets. So the, the last bit I had was I am, in, I am in my maintenance phase now, the system. So I've got a few projects on, but uh, edge case management we've sort of done, but I've moved to Kuma. So I've, I tried out Kuma. I don't know if you've seen the uptime I'm Kuma, it, yeah. which is, yeah, yeah. So that's been great. So I've got it. It was only because I, I didn't realize for ages that a camera had broke. Or, or whenever it was. Mm-hmm. So I just sort of, you know, it, it, again, if you're looking for that, and, and it's kind of interesting because I've 
I've taken it, I've realized that you can sort of fiddle around with it a bit. So, you know, we talked about Room Assistant. So it checks now. So it's looking at MQTT to check that Room Assistant, all the devices have got the correct, i.e. the same cluster leader name. And if it doesn't, it can just restart those instances. So before I even get the, there's something wrong with Room Assistant, it's had its go at trying to correct it as well. So you sort of take it to the next level. And I sort of, some of the things I've been thinking about for for Home Assistant, you know, in terms of the future, wouldn't it be, you know, great if they could put some of this stuff in? I was I was trying to think of how you could sort of, I, I, one of the things I was thinking about was, let's say you have a, a light or, or an entity, let's say it's a garage light or a porch light or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, we all do our entity, you know, you get up in the morning and you go, why is that light still? And then you realize it's been on all night mm-hmm. because the edge cakes that you hadn't thought of has come and got you. And I thought, wouldn't it be great in Home Assistant if you could say uh, on the entity, let's say you have a property that says if it's on for more than, say, five hours or whatever it is, turn it off. You know, you, you've kind of, and at the same time, if this edge case catcher or whatever you want to call it, sanity checker gets fired, put, you know, alert somebody to say, here's an edge case. Yeah. Because yeah. I was thinking this. I think it's impossible with with all the interactions and you, you sort of, the more bits and bobs you put into Home Assistant and the more connected it gets, you, you end up, you're on this exponential yeah. curve of complexity and your, your chart, you kind of got to realize as you go down this journey, the more you put in, the more, and, and the more you kind of have cascading automations because I have, you know, the gate will open, which sets the lights out and you get these cascading things. You're just on an exponential curve. So you, you first of all, you've got to accept it. And then B, you're going to make mistakes and then you just got to catch them when you can and put them in. It's just the way it works. But yeah, I'm sort of on that sort of things that could be that one alone. I was just thinking, oh, that would be great if you just do this. On the entity, you could say, have this thing. So have you got Home Assistant I have to a... automatically repair itself? Like if it was to detect, okay, this cluster is at the wrong level now. Let's go ahead. Like you said, you've got uptime commit to do some of that to reboot that. Do you have any of that powered in Home Assistant or is it something else that's doing that? No, no. so in, in that case, it is Home Assistant that's doing it. So I can't remember how you do it within Kuma. So Kuma, you, oh, that was it. You just fire the web, so you fire a web hook. Yeah, yeah. So Kuma detects in this instance that the cluster is the wrong name mm. or something. Kuma detects this, sends a web hook to Home Assistant, and then within Home Assistant, I'm basically just sending restart commands over you know, remote shell commands to yep. do that. Nice. But yeah. that's kind of the start of that project. You realize, I think pragmatic solutions are the best ones here. You know, there's nothing makes a, a smart house look dumb more than I like going off when we're all in it and, and what have yep. you. So the more you put in, the more you're going to have to spend over the years as well. Stuff just breaks, stuff just happens. Yeah. So the, the trouble is we sort of all get into this physical excitement and we put stuff in and we kind of forget about it or, or, or whatever. Yeah. And so I, I've, I'm at the stage where I've sort of got my list of things is getting shorter and shorter and I've spent some time really trying to make this thing, yeah. you know, really, really reliable. Rock solid, um, yeah. So I'm kind of getting there, but I'm not there at the moment. Nice. Uptime Kuma was a good start to do that. Yeah, I think Jan mentioned that um, in the last episode. I'm sort of, yeah, getting towards the end of my list. I was gonna go on to some of the things um i haven't cracked yet i haven't cracked the car arriving at the gate i've just i think i have um we have a bizarre situation where 
We have a really, really good broadband, but really, really bad phone signal. So if I'm using geotagging on the Home Assistant, by the time I get close enough, it's lost signal. It's got just in or out signal. So I've tried all sorts of things of trying to detect Bluetooth. I know like last week you were talking about doing number plate recognition and stuff. Just forget it. You just cannot do it. I tried. You, you cannot do it, let's say, in a in a timely manner. Um, and usually sense. you'll find that the cameras that you've got, if it's pitch black and pouring with rain, you've got no chance of getting that, you know. So, so I'm, I'm currently fiddling around with shortcuts in iOS and you have to do all sorts mm-hmm. of weird things to sort of get around some of iOS is stopping you to do these things, which is looking hopeful yeah. in that the phone recognizes it's, you create a different focus. The phone recognizes it's tagged into a different area and it then uses one of the iOS shortcuts that you've configured through the Home Assistant integration. Um, the problem then is I don't know which car I'm in to work out which garage door to open, but I can, I'm getting there. It's been, a, I've tried all sorts of things having could this Bluetooth be, devices. Could, could you use an NFC tag for this? Just have an NFC tag in the car. Tap I the tried tag. that one. <laughs> so, yeah. I've stuck an NFC tag on it, and and a the first problem is by the time I do that, I'm usually you know like I've got virtually zero signal. This is my problem. Mm, so the phone has no data signal, and even then, I found pressing the tag onto the iPhone, and I think the iPhone asks you whether you want to run this thing every time, which is kind of like this or something so i think it's i've thought about i've thought of i thought of everything and i just you know for me it's the one it's the holy grail of, of fixing that one um times yeah that's sort of my last one I, i've also just bought the open energy monitor thing one of the things i haven't done is catch I, i'm always worried about a pipe bursting particularly with the the outside stuff and then if a pipe bursts there, the borehole is just going to run flat out two kilowatts and flood something. So um, I had the, the soldering iron was out again, and you get this little daughter board that you do. There's a guy on um, GitHub down those. So, and then I can actually detect because one thing I can't detect at the moment is if a device is sort of if that device has run away. I've just got no way of detecting the power that it's drawing. I mean, I, in theory, I could say, well, the house is doing something uncharacteristic because i could see that the house is drawing it but i would have difficulty working out that it was actually that. Exactly so, is. yeah 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 so i've i've kind of got that one doing and and in the background you know for someone who's worked at microsoft for a long time I, i'm kind of going cold turkey that i'm working i, I have an ipad now and so i'm Ooh. switching everything to ipads so i'm trying to wean myself you see just because i like the battery life on the ipad anywhere so Fair. Uh, I've got, um, I'm using code server. So I don't know if you've seen that. So that's basically VS code in the web. Yep. So they basically, I think it's the thing they use for code spaces on GitHub, same thing, but you can install it locally. So I've installed that on a Pi and, you know, you basically configure the iPad to just do a Safari window for that. And it, it looks like it's okay. So I'm, and there's enough tools around MQTT and, you know, SSH tools and what have you. So I, I, I'm sort of thinking I've I've finally broken free for the PC to be able to just maintain the whole Home Assistant through an iPad. It's a real shame that they don't do VS Code native for iOS, but it's, I don't think it's ever going to. No, I don't think coding on a tablet's probably their main target audience, I would say. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, mine's an iPad Pro. So I bought the one with the keypad. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. That would make I didn't so, realize they've gone to that level. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, which is, it's really, really good. And it's got a nice, so it is like using a PC, if you like, but it's got yeah. all day battery life and it's instant on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, gotcha. Yeah. 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 It's not the standard iPad experience of things. I've got a trackpad and so that's another thing. Uh, I suppose, sort of, yeah, I'm sort of at the end of my journey and that, you know, hopefully for some, it's, there's been some, good bits in there and pick out in terms of you know learn from our mistakes you know what we're going through and and you know mine's a pretty complete sort of I, I am at the point where i think i've done everything i can in the house i've just got a few little projects to do but essentially home assistant runs the house it's getting yep. very reliable mm-hmm. and it sort of makes you then ponder about the future of of home assistant the future of nabucasa because you know my view is i'm suddenly like like really selfishly thinking, I need this thing to live on. You know, I, I can't, I, I know it's open source and what have you, but if the guys stop developing it, you know, I'm stuffed kind of thing. Because <laughs> I've, I've tried, you know, I'm, I sort of did everything I ever did in C Sharp. And so I'm starting to try and transition to Python, but I'm not there yet. And I do look at some of the code yeah. now and again. It's painful. Um, so I, I'm going to have to do that. But, you know, I, I hope... You know, firstly, I think Paulus, you know, what a job he's done to sort of create a an open source project that is for consumers. You know, it's not like sort of Red Hat and stuff where they're doing it to enterprises. Mm. It's it's a project that yeah. is self-sustaining, you know, with a company in, in open source, which I don't think's ever been done before. So, you know, first of all, that's just amazing. Let alone, you know, sometimes you, you start to think, you know, I, I walk through a house and the lights go on and you start to actually think what's happened there, you know, an infrared beam's been broken that's spoken to this, that's spoken to that, that's gone through a rule set and it's turned on a light. I think it's just, you know, and it's happening all around the world. So that, again, you know, he must, I'm sure he must look about this as with some real pride in terms of what he's achieved here. So I just think we all need to sort of stand back because this hasn't, can't really think of another open source project that's got, you know, this any any project that you do that integrates with everything is just going to be a nightmare from the beginning because you're going to get breaking changes and, and all the stuff that you've seen the project's yeah. gone through. But it it's growing and it's getting stronger, you know, and I just hope we can sort of move the project into being a bit more mainstream, but I don't know how we do it because a lot of the stuff we've discussed today, you know, a lot of people you know, they listen to this and they go, that's pretty geeky, you know, techie stuff. So <laughs> maybe matter is the solution to that. I, I don't know yet. Or is that just another yeah. protocol that we're just going to have to deal with? So, um, I, yeah, Time I just think... tell on that one. <laughs> Verdict's so. still out. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I'm of the same opinion We've we've all seen in the industry another protocol has just come out and it was another one to deal with rather than it being a solution to all the previous protocols that have actually happened. So I just you know I, I'd love to think that that Navicast are just yeah I don't know it's it's sort of long term viability but you know personally I just hope whatever happens there is a way there for for Navicast to succeed because it it kind of becomes essential I think to Home Assistant. I mean you know we need people doing development on it full-time as best you know people doing it part-time is just never going to be sustainable i think as the project you know grows and grows absolutely i think i think at least they have the right pieces there so Mm. all right well alistair thank you so much um for talking to us today we're going to leave uh some bonus clips on our youtube channel so if you want to check out some more with alistair um links are in the description below um, Elsa, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time and thank you for all those tips as well. Oh, pleasure. And thank you for your time and thank you for your efforts on the podcast, guys. You're welcome. Cheers. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. 
you want to share your home assistant journey or come on as a guest, reach out to us at feedback at haspodcast.io. That's H-A-S-S podcast.io. The Home Assistant Podcast is hosted by Phil Hawthorne and myself, Rohan Karamandi. For links to topics we discussed today, check out our show notes on haspodcast.io. Thank you.